We're going to continue on. Sean started uh, us, we're going to creep through the book of Philippians and just try to get a good handle of this, this wonderful, awesome book. And if you're grabbing a, a pew Bible, we don't have pews, but we do have Bibles. <laughs> the pew Bible is there, it's on page 570. And if you don't have a Bible, we always say you're free to take that one home. They're not in the best of shape, so yeah, please feel free. <laughs> anyway, I just want to start off by saying, as you look at Philippians, it's, it's safe to say that people are, are, are passionate, if not consumed, with their pursuit of happiness. Do you think that's true? You know, it's, it's what drives us to buy stuff, to find a, a great mate, a wonderful job, maybe pursue sporting success. The list goes on and on of, of things that we do to try to find happiness, inner joy, and, and contentment. So where did you go to find those things? Happiness inner joy, and contentment. You know, I lived in Canmore for like 16 plus years now. And we, after we lived here about three or four years, we thought, boy, we're locals because Canmore is such a revolving door. People come and they go. And, and so 16 years, and I've seen this time and time again. People come to our beautiful mountain setting because they think they're going to satisfy their soul craving. And after a few years when the cravings are still there, then, then, then they go, well, I must, I must, maybe, maybe Vancouver Island will satisfy that soul craving. So they sell their property, they get a bigger, whole lot more land out in Vancouver Island where they have mountains and oceans and a whole lot less cold weather <laughs> out there. And you know what? The soul craving, it's still there. It doesn't go away. Because happiness, inner joy and contentment, it's, it's not found in, in stuff or people or, or pursuits. It's found in a relationship with the Lord Jesus. Maybe I'm describing you because I know I'm describing me. You know, I, what I, I said last night in the service, I think I should do this. I should put a mirror right here because I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody this morning. <laughs> because I look for so many other things to satisfy the longing in, in, in my heart. Even this week, uh, I got the uh, Backcountry Ski Magazine gear guide. You know, the gear guide, and I can guarantee the next coming days and weeks I'll be pouring over the stats of the skis and, and the equipment, looking at the, the stuff. You know, we get, we get so taken up with, with the stuff. So this brings us to the book of Philippians. So it, Paul, it, it's a prison epistle, Paul sitting in prison, as we int- introduced last week. And yet it's also known as the book of, of joy. Here's Paul, he's got no worldly reason to have joy because everything's been taken away from him. All his, his, his possessions, all his privilege as a Pharisee, um, just his freedom. You know, I, I've often thought, what would it be like to have to be a prisoner in jail? I mean, to me, I get so much joy uh, shushing down a mountain or flying down a mountain on my bike or running on trails. And to have to be locked up in prison would be the worst. So to me, it'd be like the worst thing ever. I would think that sometimes. But here's Paul. He's in prison. But he writes this book of Philippians, and it's just incredible joy Joy everywhere. And these four um, short chapters, I think Joy is mentioned like 16 times, something like that. So um, I want to just share five reasons why Paul had joy and why we can have joy in in Christ too. I had a wonderful PowerPoint. It wasn't that wonderful. (laughs) But I put it on an old version of PowerPoint. So we we couldn't get it up. So sorry. So you're going to have to maybe listen a little closer instead of having it on the screen. The number one reason why Paul can have joy, and we can too, is that spiritual joy is independent of circumstances. You know, it's a deep abiding confidence that no matter what life throws your way, despite the circumstance, you can have joy. Secondly, joy is abundantly available to those who believe in the gospel. 
know, Jesus himself said in John 15, he said, my joy will be in you and my joy will be made full. So in other words, when Jesus gives us his joy, he said it will be full, not just partial. It'd be complete joy. That's amazing. And number three, uh, joy comes far from our own ability or enablement. It comes directly from the Holy Spirit. You know, think, think to Galatians chapter 5, fruit of the Spirit. You know what they are? Love. What's number two? Joy. It comes from the Holy Spirit. So we can't manufacture joy on our own. It's something that God gives us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Number four, joy is experienced as, as, we, as, as believers receive and obey the Bible. Even way back in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, who was known as the weeping prophet, because like Paul, he was thrown in prison. But he says in Jeremiah 15, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I've been called by your name. Do you come to his word in the morning to get joyful? I remember the old prayer warrior, George Mueller. He said, my first uh, object of the day is to get happy in the Lord. He'd open up his word, find things in there that would make him happy and joyful. So joy is found as believers receive and obey the Bible. Number five, joy is deepened through trials. It's deepened through trials. The full reality of joy uh, comes when compared to sadness and sorrow and trials. Paul spoke in 2 Corinthians of being sorrowful, yet also, yet also rejo- rejoicing, always rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And 2 Corinthians, Paul, he's defending his apostleship, but he lists all the things he's gone through, the shipwrecks, the beaten with rods, the, the lashes, the, 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 the mental pressures, being stoned, left for dead, and all that. And through all the sorrow... Yeah, he was so, so joyful. So joy is deepened through trials. Well, the Philippian church had their share of issues and challenges, too. They were poor. You know, in many ways, Philippians is kind of a thank you letter. Because even in their poverty, Paul was taking up an offering for the poor people in Jerusalem, the poor Christians in, in Jerusalem. And so the Philippians gave beyond their means, he says. And so it's, it's a, Philippians is an update on how he's doing, because they're really concerned. But it's also a thank you letter for their very, very generous gift. So they were poor. Um, there were false teachers in their midst, as we're going to see in our text today. And there was also some uh, tension between two prominent women that is addressed in, in, in Paul's letter as well. So things weren't always right. You know, sometimes people say, ever heard this? We just need to get back to the first century church. And so, oh, I got to get... But you know what? You read the Bible, and the first century church was kind of a mess. Just like we're kind of a mess. You know why we're kind of a mess? Because we're people. If you find the perfect church, don't join it because you're going to wreck it. Because <laughs> no one's perfect. <laughs> and, and so much of the New Testament wouldn't even been written if it wasn't for these problems. Because the, the authors write letters to address a lot of these problems that were going on in the first century church. So they weren't perfect people, and neither are we. And so they had some issues. But finally they get a letter from Paul because this Philippian church hadn't heard from Paul in about four years. And they didn't, know, they didn't know if he was, was already martyred for the faith, uh, if he was doing okay. I mean, and so I, I think they're, they're probably really concerned. Paul planted that church, I think, on his second mission journey. And, and they were concerned about him. And so Paul writes to tell them, things are good. It's okay. And, and even though I'm in prison, my prison ministry is absolutely thriving. So maybe they even, I mean, for us to really get in to understand some of the the wonders of, of, of the Bible, and even the gospel message itself, we need to sometimes emotionally put ourselves in, in the hearts of people that are there. Like, to really understand the gospel, try to feel what the father felt like when he watched his son 
being hung on the cross. And then the gospel message will take even on more, more meaning. And in a way, lesser way, think about the Philippians church. I mean, they really love Paul, but they haven't heard from him in four years. And they've heard maybe he's in jail and things are going bad. And they're just, they're worried about him. You know, if, if Pastor Sean, who's in, in Nelson right now, he all of a sudden disappears, we'd be worried about him. <laughs> You'd be stuck with me. That would be no good. No. <laughs> so, so they were really concerned. And so Paul, he, he writes this letter. And, and you know, the, the introduction that we looked at last week, maybe they glanced over that and raced to the second part where they say, okay, how, but how is he really doing? You know, we got the salutation and the greetings, but how is he really doing? So that brings us to chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. Let's grab our Bibles as we, we go into that. I'll just read it out for us. It's a huge chunk of scripture. When I read this, I'm like, okay, there's like four sermons here. <laughs> but we're going to cover as much as we can. Verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word without, of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and in and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ shall even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But I, if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose, for I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. So when Paul says... The very first phrase, I desire for you to know, this is a common Greek expression. Just saying, heads up, I really want you to know this. Take heed. This is something that, that this is important to hear. And this is important for us to hear too. He's not just writing to the Philippians. He's writing for Christians for all time. So we need to really hear this. What is Paul wanting them and us to know? He, want, he wants us and them to know that his, his imprisonment, far from being a tragedy, is actually... Uh, a really good thing. It's had an incredible result, and that is the furtherance of the gospel. Um, Paul is saying it looks bad, but no, actually, it's actually quite, quite good. So Paul has such a heart for people. Do you ever wonder where he gets his heart for people? Paul has a heart for people and a heart for the gospel. And I wonder, how did he get such a heart? You know, if you go back to, remember Romans 9, where he talks about his Jewish countrymen. He says, if it would even be possible, of course, it's not, fortunately, for Paul, but he says, if it even would be possible, I would be willing to trade my salvation in so my Jewish countrymen could know Christ. I mean, what kind of love is that? That's, that's amazing, incredible. He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about others. And we'll get to that in, in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, Deb and I had that at our, our wedding. You know, don't just be thinking about yourself considering yourself so important, but the needs of others. 
So that's, that's down the road. But, but Paul had such a burning heart desire for people to know the gospel, and he loved the gospel message. You know, this is conviction time for me. When's the last time our, our hearts really ached for someone to know Christ? Like really ached for someone to know Christ. Maybe for you it's been recently. Maybe you've been praying for someone for a long, long time. Getting back to George Mueller, there's a person he prayed for to come into the kingdom for 60 years. He never stopped praying for someone for 60 years. And that person came to Christ. you know when? It was the day they lowered Mueller into the ground. He gave his heart to Christ on that, on that day. But for 60 years, he never stopped praying. Maybe you've got someone in your life like that. Don't give up. Persevere. Keep praying for him. But let me ask you this. Have we made sacrifices in our, in our, our time so that someone can know Christ? Have we made sacrifices in our, in our money so that someone can know Christ? I've heard of guys that, that lived on ramen noodles, food like that, so they can give more to missions. Now, I'm not that willing to do that myself. <laughs> but there are people out there like that. And sacrifices in, in, in prayer. Have we labored in prayer? Not just in perseverance, but really just in, in time and, and in prayer. So that's, like I say, conviction time. I took a class from a great old theologian years ago named Howard Hendricks. And the guys would go down to Dallas Theological Seminary to, to take just all, all of Hendricks' classes. And, and Howard Hendricks had something interesting in, that he'd say, and, and this is kind of how he said it. He'd say, when he got to a point in a message like this, he'd say, too convicting. Let's move on. So that's what we're going to do today. Too convicting. But anyway, in Paul's letters, he reveals even more of his heart. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I'm under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And to the church in Ephesians, he said, I do not consider my life any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus. You know, I remember um, years ago, John MacArthur telling the story about John Bunyan. You know who John Bunyan is? He wrote a very famous book. I'll get to that in a minute. But John Bunyan was a 17th century preacher, and the Church of England didn't like him preaching the gospel, which is kind of strange. You'd think the Church of England would want them preaching the gospel, but, but so they, they had the government officials lock up John Bunyan. Well, so he goes out in the courtyard, and John Bunyan preaches the gospel to the inmates. And then the people from the town of Bedford and the surrounding communities, they would stand outside the prison and listen to John Bunyan preach the gospel. Well, you could imagine how well that went over. So they take him down the deepest parts of, of the dungeon, of the prison, where he couldn't preach to anybody. So he starts writing, writes, writes a book, a book called Pilgrim's Progress. You ever heard of that one? Mm-hmm. It was translated in, in many languages, and for hundreds of years, it was the second most read book next only to the Bible. So whatever circumstance uh, he was in, he just kept preaching the gospel. And that was the, the kind of heart that, that, um, that, that John Bunyan had, influenced millions for Christ. So there's three kinds of suffering and that comes into our lives. There's one that's corrective suffering, and then two is instructive. Number three, kingdom building. So corrective is when we're down the wrong path, and perhaps our sin um, brings us down the wrong path, and, and God brings suffering into our lives to correct us. You know, Solomon said in chapter 3 of Proverbs, which is later quoted in, in Hebrews 12, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, um, and no, don't be weary of his correction, for whom the Lord loves he corrects or disciplines. So actually when he corrects us, it's proof of our sonship and daughtership of God. So when he corrects us. So the other suffering is instructive. It's used to mold us to the image of Christ. I had a friend, he was an all-American uh, 
decathlete in track and field. And this guy went to Colorado State University, and the coach asked him, he says, well, what are your goals? And he says, I want to go to the Olympics. So then my friend said, at that point, my coach began to hurt me, and often. <laughs> and he didn't make it to the Olympics, but he made it to all-American status. And God does that to us sometimes. He molds us and brings suffering into our lives to make us better and to make us more like Christ so we can represent him. And then lastly, there's, there's kingdom building, um, suffering, to move us where God wants us to be. You know, this is what, uh, what, what Paul was experiencing. But also experienced uh, by the, the, the first century church in the, in the book of Acts, the very first century church, they um, were given the mandate to take the gospel to the whole world, but they're all hanging out in Jerusalem. So what did God do? He sends persecution their way. And they, they have to go out into the, all, all the world. And as they fled the persecution, they preached the gospel. So some kinds of suffering is kingdom building. And, and you might think, well, that might, sounds kind of harsh. But and you think about it again, it's, it's honoring to the people, to us, if that happens, that God would actually use us um, to, to spread his gospel. And he's got a plan for us. He's got a plan for his kingdom. And he brings the two together. And he does it through suffering. And so in a way, we are honored when he corrects us or uh, uses us to, to build his kingdom that way. So Paul was the last one, like I said. And you can have so much joy in the midst of all of that. So even though I've shared previously those five reasons why Christians can have joy, the overriding reason why Paul had such joy is found right here in the book of Philippians. And even in our chapter, we're going to look a little more in depth in, in verse 21. But what did, he, what did he say there? For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. For Paul, everything was about Jesus. And then later in chapter 3, he says, I count everything loss in light of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus and him crucified. So Paul had a love relationship with Jesus. He cultivated it daily and his whole life. And that's what it was all about. His overriding uh, pursuit of life was, was Jesus himself. And that's what gave him such great joy. Well, let's go a little deeper into our text here. Paul mentions the Praetorium Guard. You know, King James, they, uh, they interpreted it as the palace. Well, that's kind of wrong. The Praetorium Guard was actually um, the, the emperor's chosen guards. Just kind of like, uh, I don't know, in Canada what we have for kind of our, our elite um, um, police. But like in Italy, it's the Carabinerai, and, 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 and in Iran, it's the Islamic Guard or something like that. And every, every country's got their kind of their special forces. Well, in, in the Roman uh, uh, Empire, the special forces were the Praetorium Guard. And the reason why they were guarding Paul, not only were they official bodyguards of the emperor, but they were also in charge of all the imperial prisoners. And Paul was an imperial prisoner. And so these guards were really influential. And, and so here's Paul. Ever since his arrest in Jerusalem, he's been chained to one of these guys. And he didn't just put him in jail and the, the guards were looking over his cell. They were actually chained to, to Paul. And so uh, the first watch, you know, they, they, they chained Paul, this praetorium, very influential guard, the, the emperor's select. And so Paul, loving people like he does, he gets to know the guy. And, and they see Paul's heart and they go, wow, this guy loves people. And Paul loves the gospel. He, Shares the gospel with this guard. And then, and then second watch comes, they unrelease un- it, they hook him up to somebody new, and he gets to know that guard and shows love to him and shares the gospel with him. And, and, uh, and then the third watch comes, they release him and put him a new, new guy, and same thing. And, and this has been going on for days, 
for weeks, months, and years. <laughs> and so Paul's like, his prison ministry is thriving. And he's pretty excited about it. So, um, and what it's done, it's emboldened other Christians. That's what he says here. There's a couple of words that really stand out to me. Um, so it says in verse 14, Most of the brethren trusting the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Well, us pastor types, we like to... Sometimes we read our, our Greek New Testament, which is the original language of the, the New Testament, and then you look at the English. This is what I did this week. And I go, it's a little lacking here. Because when he talks about um, far more, there's actually like... There's a Greek word, parasoil, combined with another word, teros. Parasoil is, is abounding, like abundant. And then the word teros is, is um, like way beyond. Kind of like you could use it for something that's way out there or even that's used of a, of a prodigy, like Malcolm Gladwell would call it an outlier. But those two words are brought together, parasoi teros, which means super duper abundant is, is what it is, super duper. So that's the kind of confidence that they had, um, super duper ab- uh, confidence to share the gospel. Does that describe your witness for Christ? I don't think it describes mine. <laughs> but that's what they had. And then it says, and they, had, and they, and they without, without fear. Back in the 90s, there was that uh, thing, um, no fear. And the Greek word is phobos, and then they put a little alpha, uh, A in front of it, which means the opposite. So kind of like no fear. And uh, you may not ever believe this, but I, I had a ninja one day in my life. And the very first ninja I went to bought, the guy had a, a, a no fear sticker on there. And I started thinking, uh, you should probably fear that. There's a lot of horsepower underneath your legs there. But anyway, they had super-duper uh, abundant confidence and no fear to share the gospel. That's how people were inspired by Paul's witness. And I think that really energized Paul, maybe, as well. You know, um, I share a little bit. Uh, last time I shared about one of the first um, uh, athletes that... well. I moved to Canada in 94, and I met this speed skater, Katrina LeMay. And then she became a Christian. I think I shared about that. Well, four years later, they did her, her um, it was Olympic time, they did her CBC profile. And so, you know, she was the favorite to win the gold medal. And then before they showed her race, they showed her, her profile. And the summer before, a Bible study, she goes, hey, Steve, I think it's going to be really good. All they asked me about was, was my faith. I'm like, really? Like, yeah. The, the girl kept saying, well, this is really interesting. So sure enough, Olympic time, um, they showed this profile about her becoming a Christian, pictures of her Bible study, praying with her family. At one point, her husband, Bart, was up on a horse explaining the difference between religion and, and, a, and a relationship. And I'm watching this going, whoa, this is amazing. <laughs> what kind of exposure is that? And then, and then, you know, think about that, what that does for other Christians. You know, people probably non-Christians, weren't bowing down in front of their television sets, giving their hearts to Jesus. Maybe their hearts are a little more open. But for those of us who are believers, you're at work the next day, you're at the water cooler, and you ask your friend, hey, you see the race last night, the gold medal? Like, yeah, that, that, that girl about, you know, that, the one, the gold medal? You met profile, you see that? I'm one of those. So as Christians, when our heroes stand up for Christ, like Paul was their hero, it kind of just energizes and gives us a little more boldness as well as, as that happens. So, but if you're still not feeling super-duper abundantly confident in sharing the gospel, I want to tell you another story because this kind of explains... Um, I, 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 I 
tell people the definition of a successful witness is three things. Number one, taking the initiative. Number two, in the power of the Spirit. And number three, leaving the results to God. Years ago, well, no, I still have this Bible study at the Oval with speed skaters and some other athletes. And we had this speed skater named Tamara Udenarden. And she invited her little sister, Nikki, who had been down in San Diego State on a full-ride scholarship uh, in track and field. And she was a really good heptathlete. And she made it to NCAA finals as a freshman, which is unheard of. But she had a falling out with her coach, so she came up to Calgary to train with uh, Les Grammatic, uh, one of our top athletics coaches at the time. And this group was like the best heptathletes really in the world. There were four or five of them. And they were Olympic Medal, they were in contention for Olympic and World Championship medals. And so Nikki's kind of, even though she's really good and really gifted, she's number two right now in Canada for heptathlon, she's really intimidated by these girls um, because they're kind of her mentor. But anyway, I get a message from a friend of mine that one of them, a girl by the name of Jessica, and if you follow track and field, you probably know exactly who I'm talking about. She's won Olympic medals. Jessica has a Christian background. She's probably interested in coming to your Bible study. So I tell Nikki, I said, hey, you should invite Jessica to Bible study. And she goes, Jessica? I don't think so. Well, that's what I heard. So I don't know, Steve. So I didn't think she was going to do it, but she did. She gets up her courage, invites her friend Jessica to come to their Bible study. And you know what Jessica said? She goes, why would I come to that? <laughs> I felt so bad for Nikki. I put her up to this. And then she gets shot down by this gal she really looks up to. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, Nikki. But, but that, I remind her, but what's the definition of a successful witness? Taking the initiative and the power of the Spirit, leaving the results to God. So, Nikki, let me ask you again. Was that a successful witness? She goes, well, I guess. Paul Harvey, rest of the story, six months later, they're at training camp down in the States. And Jessica comes up to Nikki and she goes, hey, tell me again about that Bible study. So you, ne- you never know. You know, folks, God is working in so many ways, so many hearts, so many places. If we just have some boldness, you know, it's been said that only 5% of Christians share their faith. You know, so God really doesn't have a whole lot to work with. And, and so if we're willing to step out in faith, encourage, no fear, super abundant courage maybe, hopefully, that who knows what God might do to you. Because like I said, he doesn't have a lot to work with. In the Christian world. And if we're willing to work with him, he could do some amazing things for you. And there are people out there that he's been working, 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 and they're ready just to come in. And all it might take is just one invitation to church, one invitation to just explain the gospel, maybe share your personal life story. Amazing things can happen. And Paul tells us he endures all things for the sake of the elect. And that's what he was doing here. So... Let's go to verses 15 and 18. We see that Paul um, had some, some adverse adversaries here. And, and they were preaching the gospel just to spite Paul. You know, and, and so often, eagles get in the way. And they were maybe threatened by Paul and wanted to make him look bad. But Paul didn't care. Because what he cared about was the gospel was getting out there. Because he loves people, loves the gospel... And as he says in our text, what then in every way, whether in pretense or truth, that Christ is proclaimed? And he rejoices in that. You know, so many times in ministry and life, if we could just check our egos at the door and not worry about how we look 
or if we get esteem or credit, and just concentrate on what uh, and, and making Jesus look good. You know, our songs, we're all about that today. You know, just glorifying Jesus, magnifying Jesus. And in our witness, if that's our goal, then we won't worry about standing in the way or looking good or looking bad. And, and just concentrate on him. And just concentrate on Jesus looking good. And that's what Paul was doing, I believe, too. So whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And that's what he rejoiced about. So there's an entire sermon that I could give on envy. I read a book a while ago uh, called The Enemy Within. And you know what? That enemy is within each one of us, envy. And that's what's going on here. And, and we need to deal with that. But this is a sermon for another day and another time. I want to jump ahead to verse 21 because this is an incredible verse. Verse 21, this is a funeral verse. But you know what? It's not for the dead. It's for the living. For, for, to, for to me, to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I've officiated many funerals, and I've used this verse in, in, in some of these funerals. But you know what? I've, all, I've often wondered, it'd be kind of cool to, to be there uh, at our own funeral, in spirit, of course, not in body, <laughs> but to, to kind of look and see what people say. A friend of mine, he's the chaplain for um, the, the Calgary Flames and the Stampeders, and, and years ago, his, his grandfather died. And so I went to the funeral, and he told me about his grandfather before this happened. He was a mean old cuss. This guy used to beat his wife, beat his kids, is abusive here, abusive there. And uh, my friend's dad was, had been a pastor, so he officiated his own, his own father's funeral. And he was honest, but even this mean old cuss, they still said a lot of good things about him <laughs> somehow. So I think it would be kind of cool to, to, to be present at our own funeral. But even better, what would be better to, to, to go to our own funerals like years before we die? And think about what do I want people to say at my funeral, you know, and what do I, what do I, how do I want to live my life so that we'll say those kind of things at my funeral? Something would be much better for that. That would be quite a gift. But in this verse in the Greek actually has no verbs. So it basically says to live Christ, to die gain. And to live Christ, to die gain. I don't think Paul was just a bad Grammarian, I think he was doing that for, for emphasis. To live Christ, to die, gain. He fully understood, Paul did, that wealth, power, influence, possessions, they didn't mean anything. The only thing that meant anything was Christ. And I think very few can honestly say with Paul um, to live Christ, to die, gain. If, if we lost everything, you know, all our possessions, all our prestige, all, all our relationships. We lost everything. Would we still say to live Christ, to die gain? You know, it may seem like a, a funeral verse, but really this is a life statement. It goes hand in hand with our previous discussion about evangelism. And really the best example, I think, of that is Ad, Adder, I can't ever say his name, Adoniram Judson. You know who that is? He's the first North American mission, missionary ever. Adoniram uh, Judson. He was sent out from North America in the early 19th century. He went to Burma with his wife and, and two children. And they soon died of disease. And after 14 years of, of labor, he only had just a handful of converts. And he had translated some of the Burmese language. Um, and he had spent some time in prison as well. And, and just like Paul, uh, Judson longed to be with, with Christ in heaven. He lost his family and the, the, the laboring for Christ was, was hard. But what kept him going was the message of the gospel and his love for the Burmese people. 
And so he continued to labor on. And he asked God to allow him to live long enough so he could translate the entire Bible into Burmese and then plant a church or establish a church of at least 100 people, which the Lord allowed both of those things to happen. And before he died, he also translated an English-Burmese um, thing and a Burmese-English dictionary, which greatly aided the Christian missionaries that, that followed uh, Judson after him. So spiritual greatness is, is knowing Christ so intimately that we long to be with him, to say goodbye to this world and be with him. But perhaps we'll call it super spiritual greatness when you still stay committed to the cause of Christ, knowing it'd be so much better, like Paul said, to be with him. But you stay here for the labor and the love of people that are here. So I want to talk about death just for a minute. Last week, a non-Christian coach confided in me, and he'd done this once before, his, his fear of death. He said he's, he's af- really afraid of dying. And you know what I told him? I said, you know what, coach? You're halfway there to becoming a religious person, whether you know it or not. Because so many people don't understand uh, the eternal nature of our souls. And they just, we just kind of forget about it, and we just kind of go on and on. The only heaven that a non-Christian person will experience is the heaven that they make for themselves here on this earth. But sadly, a lot of Christians don't really consider the immortality of, of their souls as well. And so we live for kind of the, the, the here and now. But for my friend, and maybe other non-Christians as well, on a subconscious level, there's some understanding that there's going to be a judgment and a condemnation that looms ahead. So some Christians picture uh, death as a gain over the worst in this life. But for Paul, life was really good, but death was even even better. And, and um, so I, I think that um, when it comes to death, I think we need to understand the seriousness of it and to contemplate it and let it influence our lives as we live as Christians far more than, than it does in a way. So I want to give some reasons why verse 21 tells us to die is gain. Number one is that death brings a permanent freedom from evil. You know, Paul even said that he longs to be free of this body of, of, of sin. And so like for us, we look around, we see the evil around our world, and we, we kind of long to be rid of that. And so death brings us a permanent freedom from that. And number two, death brings us like Christ. We get a glorified body like Jesus. You want to know what your body's going to be like in heaven? Read the end of the Gospels. When Jesus had a glorified body, he, he eats, he walks, his physical stuff, touches people. And, but he can do some cool stuff too. He can disappear and reappear. I mean, I don't know. I think we're going to have a glorified body like that. It's going to be kind of cool. So death will bring us like Christ. We'll have glorified bodies. But maybe more importantly, we'll have a fuller understanding of what the way things really are. And we'll have a more perfected love for, for God and for others. You ever get frustrated sometimes with your lack of love and, and the sin battles? Well, number three, we'll be like him. Um, not just like a glorified body, but we'll be with him. Now, number three, that's what I meant to say, sorry. We'll be with him, not just like him. Number three, we shall be, lo- be with him. So he's with us in this life, but we'll know him face to face in the next life. And we can worship him in this life, but imagine how much better the worship's going to be face to face. We'll see him in all of his glory, and the music's going to be awesome. If you sing off key now, you won't in heaven. <laughs> if your neighbor sings off key now, they won't in heaven. Maybe that's even better. But um, it's going to be good, face to face. So let me just close with the story. Back in the old days of the Roman Empire, the Roman army 
they when they when they were marching through the day, they they, they go to break camp. At the end of a long day's march, the first thing they did was make this camp, and it was no ordinary camp with a few tents here and there. They would make a big rectangle, and uh, this rectangle would have like ten to twelve feet of of just armor, like like brush and, and logs and stuff for protection. And then they build a road down the middle of it one way, and then a road down the middle of it, and they get a big cross. And at that point, this is where the commander's tent was, and and. And the troops had all assigned, pre-assigned places that they had set up. And they had, re- like, this rampart was 10 to 12 feet high. And the top, was re- the, the top was reinforced, and the corners were all strengthened. And in the morning, when they broke camp to move on to the next thing, they just left it all behind. Because they only took what, what they needed, their, their baggage, and then they marched to the next place. And then set up camp again. But they just left it all behind, kind of like a shell. And you could say, hey, the Roman army was here. But they didn't take what they didn't need. You know what? That's how, how we are in our bodies. When we go to, to be with Jesus, um, we just leave that body behind because we're not going to need it anymore. And we'll get to be with him face to face. In death, there's great freedom. But most importantly, there's great reward. You know what the re- reward is? It's Jesus himself face to face. So um, Christ, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Let me close this in prayer and then we'll have some worship. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you so much for um, the hope that we have and the, the certainty that we have. And Lord, uh, evangelism and that hope goes hand in hand together because to share that hope with someone is one of the greatest things that we can do in this earth besides getting to know you better. And Lord, I pray that you would empower us and strengthen us for that witness. But also, Lord, just... Enlarge our hearts for the ability to see you and love you more. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would just well up within each one of us. Every heart that's in this room, Lord, I pray that your spirit would begin to do a work. Maybe that would surprise every one of us as to how much love we could really have for you and desire for you, Lord Jesus. And we thank you that you are our reward and we will experience that reward for all eternity, Lord Jesus. We thank you so much. Amen.